I would often host visitors up to the control tower at Heathrow and they were so surprised at how quiet things were in the tower. Very little chat going on and a very hushed tone. Yes, things can get loud if certain events are happening, but in general, it's a very quiet atmosphere, quite reserved and almost relaxed, which is, I think, a good thing. We have a small boom microphone that's positioned a few centimetres away from our lips, attached to a headset, which has two large earphones, and then that connects into the desk that we're, at which we're sat or stood. You get to know the voices. I definitely say you get to know the voices that you speak to, especially if they have a distinctive accent or tone of phrase. And the reverse is true as well. They often give us nicknames, some of which I, I might not repeat on the radio. And I always walk into a room of pilots and they say, oh, I recognize your voice. I'm in two minds about whether that's a good thing or not. But you will get to know pilots just by working at an airport generally. But most of the time, they're just voices on the radio. The radio and the microphone is the most important thing for air traffic control and how we communicate to pilots and vehicles on the airfield. There is an increasing use of Datalink, which obviously still uses radio, but nothing replaces a human talking to another human when time and reaction is critical. So yeah, it's the most important thing. So I'm Nihal Arthanaika and this is a brief history of stuff. You'll hear fascinating stories about the ordinary objects around you in this podcast, all inspired by historic items from the Science Museum Group collection. So, Adam, nice to meet you. Hi, Nice to meet you too. Seems like a very important part of your job, a microphone, as it is indeed for mine, although mine doesn't carry anything like the importance that yours does yes yeah, definitely yeah my name is adam spink and i am an air traffic controller in the control tower at heathrow airport near london we work in shifts watches as we call them and uh, we we work uh, a 10-day cycle in the control tower at heathrow we talk to the the aircraft pilots and the the drivers of the vehicles using the microphones which i believe we're going to go into a lot more detail about in a minute I mean, of course, I'm using one to speak to you right now, but until today, and this is really embarrassing to admit, considering I have a microphone placed in front of me for at least three hours a day because of my day job as a radio presenter, I hadn't thought much about their history. So today, to put that straight, we're chatting with Annie Jameson, Curator of Sound Technologies at the National Science and Media Museum, to find out more. Hello, Annie. Hi, Nihal. Lovely to be here. Oh, it's great to have you here. Now, look, both of us are equally intrigued to find out more about the microphone. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is that you do? Yeah, so as Curator of Sound Technologies at the Science and Media Museum, I manage a collection of pretty much anything to do with sound that you could imagine. So how does a microphone actually work? There are many different types of microphones, but they all have the same basic principle, which is a sensitive moving element that can respond to sound, which is a movement in the air. 
So you have this moving element, which might be a container of fine carbon granules that will vibrate when the vibration in the air hits them. It might be a, a very light metallic ribbon that's thinner than a human hair, or it might be a, a membrane or a diaphragm made of another very fine material. So for example, in a diaphragm microphone, as you speak into it, your voice makes the diaphragm vibrate and that moves a coil of wire around a magnet inside the microphone. And that creates an electrical signal, which is an analogue of the sound wave. And then, of course, that electrical signal goes off down the cable to be broadcast, to be recorded or whatever else you might be doing with it. So where does the story of the microphone begin? So the first exploration into what we come to know as microphones is in the 1870s when both Alexander Graham Bell and Thomas Alva Edison were independently working on a way to translate the voice into an electrical signal that could pass down a telegraph line and be heard at the receiving end. So you could actually have speech rather than the telegraph signal. This, of course, is the telephone. And obviously, you need to be able to hear and understand the voice at the other end of the line. And human speech is particularly complex in terms of the sort of frequency spectrum that the voice utilises. So one of the very difficult things is, is getting a microphone that can capture that, that's sensitive enough to pick all of that up and transmit it and keeping that fidelity through the signal chain so that the person listening at the other end still recognises and understands what you're saying. When early recording began, Back in the, the 1890s, it was acoustic recording. So you were literally using your voice to physically move a diaphragm that was attached to the needle that cut into a wax cylinder or a record. So it's an entirely physical process. So you can probably imagine if you're having to just use your voice to physically move that, you have to be really quite loud. It wouldn't pick up a quiet voice. It wouldn't pick up a whisper. So you had to speak quite loudly and clearly. If you were singing, you had to kind of almost bellow. It was full on sort of operatic singing into the horn of the gramophone. So when microphones came along, it changed all of that. I wonder how comfortable people were with hearing their voice for the first time you know, well over a century ago, considering even now people hate hearing their own voice, don't they? There's such a kind of reaction that people have often when you record them. They say, oh, God, I can't stand hearing my own voice. Yeah, I totally understand that feeling. And I think it is a very common thing. It was quite a strange thing. The idea that the voice can persist and the voice can be there when you're not, or that you can hear a deceased person's voice. All of these things are really very strange and new in the early days of recording. If we listen to an early gramophone record now, we know it's not real. We know that's a recording because we've learned to hear those artefacts of recording that tell you it's not live. But that wasn't always the case in the very early days of recording. Tests were done by Edison, for example. He did what was called tone tests, where he would have behind one curtain, let's say a singer and a pianist who would perform, and behind another curtain, he would have a recording of that same singer and pianist. And people at the time often said they couldn't tell the difference. 
which seems odd for us because we would completely tell the difference. But I just think the idea that you could hear that live voice on a recording was such a strange thing that it was the the fact that it was there made it seem real because they weren't listening for the artifacts and the differences between the two. So was the amplification of the human voice with a microphone running parallel to recording the human voice? Were the two things happening at the same time? Yes, yes, they absolutely were. From the 1890s when we start to record, but it takes a little while for the sort of microphones in telephones to, to work their way through into the recording or broadcast studio. So these things kind of happen in parallel and then join together. A lot of the most important uses of early microphones was in speeches, in political speeches, in speeches of people like Churchill, royal speeches. There was a kind of surge in the use of microphones in the 1920s and 30s at outdoor political rallies. Because, of course, if you're trying to stir up the populace for good or bad, it's quite hard just using your raw voice. But a microphone allows you to be heard by thousands of people at one time. And this is the point at which we go beyond acoustic recording and singers can perform in a natural style because they don't have to project their voice to a large audience or to a, a gramophone. They can actually perform in their natural style and the microphone and the amplifiers do the work to make that voice audible. And we see this most classically in the rise of the crooner and the crooning <laughs> style of singing. Right. If you think about people like Bing Crosby, for example, he's whispering in your ear and he's singing love songs. It was thought quite scandalous and risque by some people at the time <laughs> that this man would be able to whisper into the ear of countless women without supervision. <laughs> Annie, can you describe early microphones? So the carbon granule was the first really successful microphone and... When you see a carbon granule microphone, you might not even recognise it as a microphone if you haven't seen one before. We have several of them in the collections at Science Museum Group, mostly made by a company called Marconi Rice in the 1920s and very much used by the BBC and other broadcasters. They're made of a hollowed out block of marble which gives a lot of stability to the microphone. It's solid and heavy. And there's a cavity that's filled with fine carbon granules. And that's sealed with a diaphragm made of mica, which is a mineral crystal which splits into wafer-thin sheets. So as you speak into the microphone, this mica diaphragm vibrates and that changes the compactness of the carbon granules and that changes the conductivity of that carbon and that's what gives you the variable electrical signal which then goes off down the wire to be used as you wish and these microphones were used by the BBC they were used for film sound from their invention in the 1920s through to the sort of early to mid 30s when more effective types of microphones were developed and Marconi worked with the BBC now I know about Marconi because my late father used to work for a Marconi that was based in Essex. So I'm very interested in this name. Yeah. 
So Mark Colony were involved with the BBC from the very beginning of the BBC, really. They worked a lot with them on lots of different types of equipment. The Marconi Type A microphone is a really interesting example because it's based very closely on an American microphone, the RCA44A, which if you ever look at early pictures of Frank Sinatra, for example, he'll be using an RCA44A. But at this time in the 1940s, the BBC were interested in these microphones, but they would have had to import them from the US and they would have cost them £130 each which in the early 1940s is a vast amount of money. So the BBC worked with Marconi to produce the Type A microphone. Because it was manufactured in the UK, it only cost £9 each. And the Type A was really effective. It went through several sort of technological developments to increase its performance, but it was regularly used and was one of the main microphones in use at the BBC for more than two decades. And it became an, an icon. I don't know if it's still the case, but long-standing BBC employees used to get a gold-plated Type A microphone as their leaving present. So it really had quite a presence at the BBC and is quite an important microphone. What about when we get to the 1950s? Are microphones still largely static? Or, you know, the beginning of rock and roll, seeing Elvis Presley, can they then start to move around a little bit more with their microphones? Yeah, pretty much all of the early microphones are large and heavy. Most of them need to be fixed in position. So the the marble carbon granule microphone you can't pick that up and move around with it it's fixed in its mount and you have to work to that and pretty much all of the microphones are like that if you look at pictures of broadcasts from the sort of 30s 40s you see people standing or sitting quite rigidly in front of the microphone you can't move the microphone you have to be in the right position in relation to it because it won't pick up your voice properly in 360 degrees so you have to face it and speak directly into it and of course that quite limits what you're able to do the type a microphone weighs i think it weighs nine pounds about four and a half kilos you're not running around stage with that when we get into people like elvis presley they are starting to move a bit more and you'll often see if you watch early films of people like elvis they're almost dancing with the microphone stand it's often been described as he's dancing with the microphone stand as if it's a woman and you do see that, but he's still largely pinned to one spot with it. He can't move around very much, although he's he's a lot more active than some previous generations of singers. So in the 1960s, one of the sort of most iconic microphones ever appears. It's made by an American company called Shure, and it's the SM58 microphone. It's the microphone I think most people think about. If you ask children to draw a microphone, they'll draw something that looks like an SM58. And the key thing about this is it can be handheld. It's small enough and light enough that you can hold it in one hand. And then you start to see performers really become more mobile. And the classic example is someone like Mick Jagger. So you see Mick Jagger, microphone in one hand, running around the stage, 
dancing, really active, dynamic, moving around. And he can only do that because he's able to, in effect, take the microphone with him. But these microphones, Annie, were still limited by the need for a microphone cable, right? Yeah, absolutely. Exploration of wireless microphones began quite early. It actually started in the 1940s. But the first ones were still really quite big, heavy things. You weren't going to run round with them. But what you could do is use them for things like outdoor broadcast and sports broadcasting and so on, because they gave you a bit more freedom in where you would place the microphone. The key problems or issues that had to be overcome is the radio transmitters. So you have to have a radio transmitter and you have to have power for that in terms of a battery pack. And some of the early battery packs were really quite big and heavy, but also would get very hot. And there were cases of people actually being burned whilst wearing the early wireless microphone battery packs. My gosh. There are some performers who still prefer to use a microphone with a cable. They're not obsolete by any means, but it really is the gold standard for a lot of artists to use wireless because the expectation of artists in live context now has moved on and often of course these performers are wearing quite skimpy costumes in many cases so people have become quite ingenious about how we attach and conceal both the microphone itself and the battery pack and the transmitter. And a lot of this comes out of musical theatre. This technology really developed initially in musical theatre, which obviously everyone is singing and dancing all the time. And then it sort of moved out of theatre and started to become more common in sort of pop music and rock performances and so on. And it is some people's job, basically, to work out where and how to hide these devices which are really essential but nobody really wants to see them so it's quite a job sometimes when someone's wearing a very tight or very skimpy costume to do that effectively. Now I don't wish to take this down a uh, rather crude cul-de-sac of conversation but Annie performers can get a bit sweaty and I can imagine that sweat especially copious amounts of sweat and electronics don't really work well together. So how do they get around that problem? You're absolutely right. It's one of the biggest problems. Sweat is the biggest enemy of any sort of electronics. And it's the most common reason why these things go wrong, because the sweat gets into them and causes corrosion. One of the things that's quite often done in live performance is to put the battery pack into a condom and then tuck it into the clothing or wherever you're going to hide it so it protects it from the sweat a little bit. But you've got to be honest, looking after microphones can be a fairly disgusting job. You might think it would be a really glamorous job to be the microphone tech for you know, some amazing artist and idol. And I'm sure it has its advantages, but microphones in general do get full of sweat, they get full of spit and makeup. They can go mouldy if they're not properly cleaned and taken care of. We actually have a microphone in our collections from the 1940s, which is the lip microphone that was used for sports broadcasting. And that actually still has traces of spit and mould in it, which um, is not very pleasant, but quite interesting. And again, a lot of the development in microphones in many ways is about miniaturising them. 
for various purposes, whether that's putting it in a headset mic, putting it in a mobile phone or hiding it in a bunch of flowers or something. So the sort of first very small microphones started to be developed at Bell Labs in the US in the 1960s and they're called electric condenser microphones and they use a polyester diaphragm that's held very close to an electrically charged metal plate and as it vibrates that converts the sound into the signal. One of the useful things in this respect about electrets is that they need very very low power so they're very useful for devices with batteries and particularly with small batteries so they're used a lot in hearing aids they're used in things like microphones for bugging and for sort of espionage purposes and they're what are very commonly in your phone your laptop your tablet you often don't even you know there's a microphone because you speak into it but you don't see it and you don't really think about it but it's in there because these microphones can be just a couple of millimeters across Now, Adam is still with us. Hey, Adam. Anyhow. Adam, how have the microphones you've used changed in the 22 years you've been an air traffic controller? They've got slightly smaller and lighter compared to the, the headset microphones I was using 20 years ago, but they really haven't changed that much. I think we're looking at some changes coming up in the, in the near to mid-future that the media industry has probably already got to. It's an example of the safety assurance that we need before we use new technology in aviation, that it possibly takes longer for us to get to the coalface than it does in other industries. How do you think the use of microphones by air traffic controllers will change? That's an interesting question. I think being smaller and lighter are definitely advantages for us because we can move around the control tower a bit more freely and anything that can improve the sound quality, the clarity of the words that we speak to the aircraft and vehicles at the airport and in the air is a benefit for safety. We speak over radio frequencies, which are just above the FM band that Radio 1 and Radio 2 is. The air band that we talk to aircraft is the next frequency band up in that spectrum. And also certain words have certain meanings. So, for example, we're not permitted to say the words yes or no on the radio. The word for no, we use negative because yes or no are one syllable. And if there's some interference on the radio or two aircraft or vehicles transmitting at the same time, that might get a bit confused or interfered with on the radio. So we're not allowed to use one syllable words generally if if they could mean opposites, because obviously there's a great safety implication to pilots and and or drivers, misunderstanding what we're saying to them. So one of the things that people who develop microphones are constantly striving for is greater sensitivity and greater directionality, by which I mean that microphones that work more like your ears. So your ears are very good at determining where a sound is coming from. You know if it's in front of you or at 45 degrees to you or just behind you on your left-hand side. Your ears can tell you that. So there's a lot of work to try and get that directionality better within microphones, particularly for things like hearing aids, where people don't just want to hear the sound, but be able to sort of process it and understand it in the way that your ears can. I think some of the more interesting examples are things like the Eigen mic, 
That's the microphone that's used for ambisonics. And ambisonic is essentially 360 degree audio. So if you're listening to something in headphones and there's a sound that's on your left hand side, you hear it in your left ear in the headphones. But if you turn round, that sound moves with you. So it's still in your left ear, even though you're now facing in the opposite direction. Whereas in real life, of course, that sound would have stayed where it was. And you'd now hear it in your right ear because you turned around in relation to it. Things like the Eigen mic and ambisonic recording allow that sound field to move as it would in real life. And one of the things that people are exploring to help with this is whether we might be able to use spider silk as the ribbon within the microphone. So that would be the moving part that responds to the sound waves. Because of course, spider silk is immensely strong, but incredibly thin and would enable you to have a microphone that was very small and also extremely sensitive. So I think it's quite early research on that yet. But maybe that will happen. Maybe you will find yourself using a microphone with spider silk in it. Oh, making me shudder just thinking about that, Annie. Fascinating. Thank you so much for really helping me to understand the microphone, a thing that I have to admit I probably take for granted. Thank you, Nihal. It was a pleasure. And Adam, having listened to Annie talk in depth about microphones has it changed in any way the way you feel about this uh headset microphone that you have with you it certainly made me think about hygiene slightly better um <laughs> than i have in the past but certainly no it's fascinating to learn the history and and how entwined radio and mass media communication has been with the microphone and some of the stories that uh, that annie was was describing absolutely amazing well, the thing is, neither of us could do our jobs without microphones, can we? No. But the fact that we're all on mobile phones, and especially if we make actual calls on those mobile phones, means that pretty much none of us now can survive without, or certainly communicate without, a microphone in our lives. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. It is indeed. Thank you so much, Adam. Thank you. A Brief History of Stuff is a Story Things Science Museum group production. Each episode features a story inspired by incredible items from the Science Museum group collection. The collection itself contains more than 7 million items, which illustrate the impact of science, technology, engineering and medicine on all our lives. If you'd like to discover more stories about the everyday objects around you, visit sciencemuseum.org.uk and search for everyday technology. Thanks to our guest, Adam, and to curator Annie Jamieson from the National Science and Media Museum for taking part in this episode. The series producer is Will Stanley and the executive producer is Hugh Gary. The script editor is Ian Stedman. Audio editor is Kenya Scarlett. And research for this episode was by Annie Jamieson. We would like to thank everyone at the Science Museum group who made this podcast possible. If you like a brief history of stuff, we'd be over the moon if you would tell your friends and rate us wherever you listen to your podcasts to help others discover these fascinating stories. Thank you for listening, and I hope we've inspired you to wonder a little more about the remarkable stuff around you. And for now, I'm going to switch my microphone off. <laughs>